Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am excited to be interviewing Joel Lehman. Joel is a machine learning scientist interested in AI safety, reinforcement learning, and creative open-ended search algorithms. Joel has spent time at a variety of places, including Uber AI Labs and OpenAI, and is the co-author of the book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. Joel's work is quite different from what I'm used to reading. You'll see this in the episode, but I find the idea of evolutionary algorithms and searching for excellence by encouraging diversity in behavior just fascinating. Joel is himself not just a talented researcher, but I think a, a very thoughtful person, and I hope that will come across in the episode. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And without further ado, Joel Lehman. So Joel, I'm going to start this podcast where we always do. My first question is how you got interested in AI in the first place. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. And that's a question I've revisited sometimes in the past. Um, I got into AI uh, through game development. I think at some point I thought I was going to be um, a game programmer when I was in college. And there was a day, kind of a fateful day when I was kind of perusing the stacks at Ohio State University's library and ran across this book on AI and game development. And it had like a, it was by Matt Buckland, I believe. And it had like a weird tack in it that it was kind of about, it focused a little bit on evolutionary algorithms and neural networks, which is a little bit esoteric. Um, this area called neuroevolution, like using neural, um, evolutionary algorithms to evolve neural networks. And there was like a demo on this, this kind of CD, a CD-ROM that came with this book, I'm dating myself, um, where you would watch it and you could see like in real time, these little minesweeper robots kind of evolve and you could see them just literally getting better at the task that they were assigned to do. And it was just really fascinating. And uh, that's really how I got into AI. It was from that moment, it felt like, okay, it's great. Like you can, an, an evolutionary algorithm evolving a brain. It's like how we got here. Uh, maybe that's you know something that I could study. And I, I got into kind of grad school looking at that uh, particular kind of algorithm um, and just kind of uh, the game programming stuff kind of went to the background and just the AI stuff came to the foreground. Interesting. And it's also kind of neat that your very first introduction there was from the perspective of this idea of neuroevolution, because I see that it's kind of a through line of a lot of the work you've done uh, that we'll discuss today. Could you tell me a little bit about what stuck out to you in particular about this area of research, evolutionary algorithms, all of that, and why you decided to pursue it in particular over probably a number of different ways in which you could have approached getting into the AI space? Yeah, the the key thing that that drew me to evolutionary algorithms was the strange fact that we are the products of one and that 
there seems like there must be some kind of simple algorithm um, that leads to some kind of great increase in complexity and diversity and functionality. Um, and it's just amazing, I think, when you think about it. So I think it really was this question of how did we get here and what are the abstract principles behind that? And evolutionary algorithms often are kind of thought of as these black box optimization algorithms. And I think that's a kind of really a, a narrow way to look at them because that's not really the characteristic of biological evolution that's like most fascinating. Like it created all the diversity of life, which is just really mind blowing. And it's a volitionless process ran for billions of years, just, I don't know, amazing. And that's kind of the, the thing that really drew me to them. And, and it's tr proven to be difficult to kind of to discover those abstract principles that actually would allow you to create an evolutionary algorithm that would have that, that great potential that, that biological evolution did for us. Mm -hmm. The description you just gave of a, a volitionless process really strikes me because it feels so different from the way we generally think about machine learning, deep learning algorithms, right? There certainly is a, <clears throat> excuse me, there certainly is a sort of volition embedded in there. You have a particular objective function, something you're trying to optimize for. And so volitionless in general just seems so distinct from that. And I can imagine for somebody coming to look at this approach from maybe a background of knowing what traditional supervised learning is, what that looks like, somebody might wonder, is that even a fruitful approach? And I know this is kind of the problem that a lot of your research is addressing. So before we, we dive into um, one of your first, one of the first papers we'll do on abandoning objectives, could you maybe just give me some high level intuitions and thoughts about why this volitionless process, this very open-ended way of approaching evolving uh, you know, systems that do things in the world, for example, would even be a promising approach? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really profound that a volitionless process produced us, but it's more kind of a proof of concept that such a thing is possible and that the algorithmic simplicity of such a thing has to be somewhat limited. And it's definitely an interesting point that when we think about designing algorithms, you know, we ourselves have volition and we will often transfer that to our algorithms. And it's not that that's bad. Um, so I, I guess maybe an interesting segue would be like to talk about open-endedness in general. Um, so the, the kind of the field of research that I've worked work within, which has in the past at least focused on evolutionary algorithms and neural networks, and now is more in the deep learning world, um, uh, the, the field of research is characterized by processes of discovery. And it's not that discovery ha has no volition. Like when we talk about, when I talk about discovery, um, you can think about biological evolution, discovering new organisms. You can think about humans discovering new, um, uh, new technological advancements in a kind of chain of innovation that might span for humans um, millennia, as we kind of work from technologies like uh, fire all the way to kind of laptops and satellites and vaccines and stuff. Um, in those, in these processes, there will be often local objectives, local volition, where you're from the starting point that you have, you have some problem you want to solve and you invent something new. Um, but when you think of the whole process as a whole, there may not be a unified objective. So when we think about science, you could say maybe there's a unified objective, like discovering new, new things, discovering new knowledge, but individual researchers will be discovering you know, things that are really pertinent to them 
and not knowing where it's going to lead. And that oftentimes a researcher will discover something and it actually will be a stepping stone for another researcher st studying something completely different to, to kind of build upon. Um, and kind of the history of science is kind of filled with these kinds of examples. So um, like the discovery of a computer um, depends on transistors, which depends on vacuum tubes. And these are not invented um, with computation in mind, but, but were the, the seeds that led to computation, that led to laptops and, and kind of the computing revolution. So like in that way, it's, it's less about maybe there being no volition and more about it's sometimes unclear where the things you discover are going to lead. So there's some uncertainty about where things are going. That's a really good articulation. And I suppose, yes, it's not entirely volitionless, but the volition that is there, the sense I get is that what it is you're searching for, as you kind of just articulated, is not so narrowly defined, right? I don't have a particular problem in the world that I've set out to solve, or at least at a group level, we don't. Individual people might have, as you said, their local objectives, but as a whole, what often gets optimized for is just interestingness. And I guess to, to speak to a lot of examples here, I know with the even, even more local objectives can produce, as you've said, these sort of flourishing ways. I know in the solution of Fermat's last theorem, for example, that kind of sprouted you know, these entirely new branches of mathematics that kind of went off and did their own thing. And in many ways, it, it does feel like what's being searched for is just something like interestingness, which I think is how a lot of your research articulates this. And maybe it's a good place to um, get to the first paper that I was hoping to discuss with you. So when you were at the University of Central Florida, you published Abandoning Objectives Evolution Through the Search for Novelty Alone, which I think has a really great articulation of some of these high-level ideas you're giving me here. Could you give me maybe a top-level summary of the paper, what some of the important things were in there for you? Sure. Yeah, so this is... Um, a my, uh, one of my first papers, and I was done with a, a PhD student, and it was um, at the beginning of this really long collaboration I've had with uh, Ken Stanley, who at the time was my PhD advisor, and I've worked with him on and off uh, across the years. Um, so he's uh, one of the originators of these ideas. And so in this paper, the, the basic idea from like a high level is to um, explore a different abstraction of biological evolution. So evolutionary algorithms uh, historically have been driven by an abstraction of evolution as survival of the fittest. And that's what's interesting about that is it's making a claim that, that the most interesting thing about evolution for the for the perspective of, of search is this kind of optimizing kind of force, like black box optimization, just looking to make this objective function go up and up and up. And I think it's it's a narrow way of looking at evolution. It's like it's uh, mistaking what's actually interesting about evolution, which is, I think, not that. And so in this um, in this paper, we instead look at what if we zero in, try to make an evolutionary algorithm that is motivated by a different characteristic of, of biological evolution, in particular, its drive to diversity. That seems like a really um, core hallmark of evolution, that it, over time it produces all different sorts of, of solutions to the problems of life. And so what we did is just create an algorithm that just searched for novelty. And this is an algorithm called novelty search. And you can also view it, view it almost as like a philosophical thought experiment rather than a practical algorithm, although it actually has found kind of applications as well. But the, the thought experiment is like, what if you just searched for divergence itself 
and weren't trying to find anything in particular, could you actually sometimes, bizarrely, um, solve problems more quickly than if you were searching for the objective itself? Um, and so in, in an experiment in this paper, we show that there exist problems where that's the case. You have this little robot that is um, trying to navigate through a maze. And if you search for novel behaviors, just trying to get the, the robot to kind of to end at different points within this maze, um, it actually will solve the maze faster than if you attempt to incentivize it to solve the maze. And mazes are deceptive. So the fitness function in this case will drive the maze into a cul-de-sac. Um, and the kind of the, the proof of concept here is that but the claim is that many problems we care about have this nature, that they're deceptive, that they're drawing us into local optima, and that only through trying to explore more widely, um, maybe only prioritizing the interesting, the novel, will we be able to solve them? Yeah, this is interesting. So in terms of searching for novelty alone, it's not something like, let me just get the robot through the maze. I have this defined objective, but rather... I have a robot that exists in this maze. I would like it to try behaving in a bunch of different ways. You you mentioned the word deception there, and I recall you have a pretty specific definition of deception in this paper. Can you um, maybe just give a, a quick summary of how you think about deception? Yeah, so deception... I think uh, with respect to machine learning often shows up more in a reinforcement learning context these days than in kind of a supervised or unsupervised learning. Um, so maybe just to keep that distinction clear. Um, mm -hmm. But deception will be where the stepping stones uh, to something, to like to solving a problem, don't resemble the solution itself. So for example, um, if you are a, a cave person trying to, um, to invent a laptop, you know, what you shouldn't do is get focused on that laptop from the start and just try to try to invent a laptop from scratch. Actually, what you should do is like basic science. You should discover laws of physics and kind of build outwards from there. And all these products that you're making along the way, like discovering the nature of electricity um, or how to make a vacuum tube, um, they're not going to resemble computation itself. And so if you're narrowly optimizing towards that goal, you just would miss the science for it. That's why we have basic research. And so that's the kind of idea of deception, broadly speaking. And then... Um, in these, in kind of a reinforcement learning setting, it'd be where you know, whatever your objective function is, if trying to you know optimize for reward just gets you into kind of a dead end, and actually the the actual solution to your problem would require like vast exploration, doing something completely different to get there. Yeah, there's a lot of different things wrapped up in that. I think from the possible misspecification of objectives that could come from the experimenter side to issues like distribution shift that can come up if you just haven't really selected a careful set of examples, for example, if, you're, if your robot is trying to get through the maze and it just so happens that the exit of the maze has like a red X by it or something. And so just in optimizing for the reward, the robot kind of ends up looking for the wrong thing here. And to, to what you were saying earlier, this analogy with, with basic science, it seems like the intuition for how this novelty search circumvents deception, which I think is kind of the claim here is that it's just letting loose as much as possible, at least, any sense of a specific objective in terms of, I want you to maximize reward to get out of the maze to do this specific behavior. And then instead, you're like, hey, do as many different things as possible. And 
probably some of those things will result in the the sorts of things that we'd like to see. Is that kind of the the high level idea there? Yeah. Um, so like, let me start maybe at the beginning of what you were saying first and then work my way there. You were talking about um, kind of like reward misspecification and kind of distribution shift, which is kind of getting to AI safety issues that are definitely related. Um, but maybe I would say like deception could exist without any of those things in the sense that it could be just that whatever your goal behavior is, your desired behavior is, there's just, it's very hard to specify um, just the recognition of that state, whatever that is, like getting through the maze. And in this case of like a robot trying to get through a maze um, in order to, the dif- there's a difference between recognizing like getting there from the curriculum that does get you there. Um, as in like the, the kinds of behaviors that are the necessary skills that could build up and that are, that may look very, very different from that, that final behavior. Um, so maybe just going to make that clear that, that even with, even if you had like a perfectly specified reward signal um, and as that it perfectly identified the goal behavior, it need not light a clean path through the search space there. Um, mm. Then to get to the second part, which uh, can you remind me the second part? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. The, the second part was more about the intuition for how this idea of novelty search circumvents deception. Ah, right. And so there's a caveat here, which is that uh, novelty search doesn't, can't perfectly solve deception. And so this is why it's kind of a thought experiment in this paper is that, I guess the, 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 the intuition is that novelty is a different kind of source information than the, than let's say like a reward function that, and in some sense you could view it as a little bit more reliable than, than the source information that comes from a reward signal in the sense that Novelty is driven by diverging from where you've been and you know where you've been. And so you can know if something is different from where you've been. So that's kind of like more, it's reliable. Whereas the objective function, you don't know how well the path that's lying through the search space is actually going to get you in the direction you want to go. So it's just, it's fundamentally uncertain. We don't know. It's like in science, we don't know if we're like a moonshot away from, from solving something or like two moonshots away. And if we're two moonshots away, maybe we could be a waste of time to try to invest a lot of resources in it. But if we're one moonshot away, then we should do it. So it's like that fundamental uncertainty. It's hard to kind of gauge how far you away, how far you away you are from, from the next kind of big invention, the next big innovation. Um, but it's not that novelty is guaranteed to get us to any particular point. So even if we're you know, doing basic science, um, we don't know if we'll ever cross the threshold of having a time machine or something. And maybe there's fundamental reasons to suspect that will never happen. Um, and we don't know exactly what's going to come into come into focus first or second. And but maybe it's the best we can do sometimes is just to keep exploring um, rather than narrowly focus in one particular direction. And mm-hmm. there's some humility there that we don't we don't really know the structure of uh, you know of of how that search space is going to unfold and. And in working machine learning, I think we know this intimately because the received w- wisdom that I received when I was in grad school was that, you know, backprop couldn't possibly work with more than, you know, two or three layers of neurons. And I was, uh, I bought into that at the time and I was a, kind of a deep learning skeptic for a while, but just that turned out to be not true. And, you know, the, the conference uh, that we now call NeurIPS, I think at some point was you know, much more focused on support vector machines because it seemed like neural networks were a dead end, but then it turned out the neural networks weren't a dead end. Um, and so there's just this kind of, uh, unfolding of science that's really, um, unpredictable, confusing, and, and still we, we just kind of invest in a lot of areas of science, hoping that, that eventually we'll, we'll kind of 
get the fruition of that. Yeah, I, I do see what you mean by a sense of humility there. It's certainly important that there's still investment and people working on areas like neural networks at a particular time, even if most people think that it's probably a dead end. It's a pretty pretty important sense of humility there when maybe most of the field is like, hey, we just think this is a really bad idea and is going nowhere to still allow and, and seed investment and that sort of thing. Let's actually go into a little bit more detail about what precisely it means to explore. In this paper, you have a particular definition or a particular way in which you measure novelty. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the in the paper, we have, in addition to kind of the, the fitness function that describes how, how good, uh, let's say, a robot is at, at getting towards the end of the maze, we also have a, a space of behaviors. So you could say like a different kind of experimenter provided space. And in this paper, it's this space is the Euclidean coordinates of where the robot ends within the maze. And so this is kind of opinionated. It's about what is interesting within this domain and what sort of space should you explore. And in some ways it's kind of cheating, right? Like to say that, you know, the experiment is providing this, this space. Um, and it's, it's a way to, to kind of punt on a deep philosophical question that is, has been one of the focuses of open-ended research, which is what is interesting? What is, you know, what actually, what characterizes interesting difference, novelty, and it's hard to, to quantify. Um, there's interesting research going on now in trying to you know, maybe use deep learning sorts of uh, dimensionality reduction techniques as kind of a way to, to measure difference or novelty in a more automated kind of way. But there's still questions about whether that's actually going to be in line with human intuition about interestingness or whether human intuition is the right thing either. Um, so there's some deep questions there. And in this paper, we sort of uh, uh, punted a little bit to the experimenter. But I think the hope is that even when you are punting to the experimenter, it gives just the experimenter a different language with which to specify a search process. So you can say like, instead of saying, find the best thing by this metric, you're saying, explore this space that I'm giving you. And sometimes that's what you want. And it can be actually useful just to say like, I wanna see everything that's possible in this space of behaviors. And you just look through that afterwards and that might give you a sense of what's out there. Um, especially in kind of like maybe art and design kind of spaces like that might actually be kind of something that's really useful there. So there's a sort of restriction here and that I do have a, a particular space. So maybe bipedal walkers in an environment, something of that flavor. And I'm like, hey, to my process, just go out there, explore this, do different things. And then, as you said, afterward, maybe in line with fitness function measurements, things like that. I can measure whether this diversity of behaviors that have been produced actually lead towards a goal I had in mind, but it's also possible because I'm not imposing any prior structures on the way in which that goal is to be achieved or anything of that flavor. You might end up just discovering ways to accomplish a goal or things that might be done that are very different from what the experimenter had in mind, which sounds like a really interesting analog to some of the broader processes you brought up, things like evolution, where it's not entirely volitionless, but in some sense still looking at 
let's kind of explore the landscape here. Let's allow different things to occur. Yeah, I think it's a good point that you still might have an objective function that is measuring kind of the goodness of something post hoc, but that there could be a fundamental difference between applying a measure post hoc to select as opposed to optimizing that measure directly. And that actually gets more into the AI safety kind of angle where there's a kind of robust finding that optimizing something that was designed as a measure will tend to hollow that measure out, um, that you probably are measuring only a proxy of the thing you really care about. And so it could be useful sometimes to have an exploratory process kind of plumb a space and then filter that space as opposed to directly optimize for the thing you want. Um, because in optimizing, you'll actually break the correlation of the thing that you actually want from the measure you're using to measure it. Yeah, and there's there's a pretty important point you make in this paper that I believe is also related to the idea of overcoming deception that we talked about earlier in that there's a desire to prevent premature convergence to, to local optima and evolutionary computation. And a big part of that, as you said, is really maintaining as much diversity as possible. And maybe for as long a time as possible, of course, if you have very specific goals, then yes, you're going to want to take your fitness function, filter down the diversity you've produced at first. But if you allow diversity to explode as much as possible, it does seem like intuitively there is a sense in which you're avoiding local optima, these local minimums we often encounter with the optimization of neural networks and things like that. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting how evolutionary algorithms, as they're normally posed, just driven by survival of the fitness, fittest, are just incredibly convergent and how different that is from the process that inspired them. And it's also true that something like novelty search, which is optimizing only for diversity, is going to have a different kind of behavior. And it does, at least to me, seem more in line with that kind of motivating example. And I think it's, again, a little bit sad that most people's exposure to evolutionary algorithms is mostly in the context of just like it's another black box optimization algorithm as, as opposed to like it's an engine of creation. Yeah. So you have another paper on this subject in which you evolve a diversity of virtual creatures through novelty search and local competition. And there's some really interesting extensions to what we were just talking about here. But maybe as a through line, some of the extensions here were inspired by this idea neat your evolution of augmenting topologies. Could you give a brief introduction to what exactly that is? Sure. So uh, NEAT is a neuroevolution algorithm that was invented by Ken Stanley, my PhD advisor and a longtime collaborator. Um, let's see, when, I don't know the exact year of it, but uh, it was before I started working with him. And the basic premise is that you can use an evolutionary algorithm to evolve not only the weights of a neural network, but also the structure of it. And that you can imagine there could be principled ways of searching through the structure of neural networks. And the principle that NEAT uses is that of complexification, that initially you start out with a pretty simple neural network. And so it's, it's kind of um, humbling by this, the standards of today's neural networks, but 
typically like a neat neural network, uh, this one of these evolved neural networks would be just a few neurons uh, to begin with. And so, so the input nodes, the output nodes, and maybe just some of the direct connections between them. And then there'd be a process of complexification where mutations could add new neurons to this neural network and, and introduce structural complexity very slowly. And so this is very different than the kind of over-parameterized re re regime that we're often in, in deep learning. These are very, very small neural networks. Um, by the time it was kind of the, the approach to building these things incrementally. And the kind of compelling thing about it was that there's no limit there. You could continually add structure indefinitely. And this was kind of in line with the, the motivation of open-endedness, that um, to have a process that would keep creating things indefinitely, you might need a search space that could expand indefinitely. And that's kind of why there's a good kind of um, linkage between these things. And in both the abandoning objectives paper that we talked about earlier and in this kind of evolving a diversity of virtual creatures paper, both of the underlying evolutionary algorithms were, were based on this neat algorithm. It's a very, it's like a popular neuroevolution algorithm still to this day. Mm -hmm. So let's maybe move on more fully to this evolving a diversity of virtual creatures. Could you tell me a little bit about what exactly you were trying to do in this paper, what the novelty search was purposed towards? So the idea here is that is to introduce a different abstraction abstraction of evolution. So a lot of the, the work that I've done has been about finding different ways of abstracting from evolution principles that could drive a search in different ways. So in, in the novelty search algorithm we talked about prior, which is just searching for novelty. And there's something you know, compelling about that that's very radical in some sense like just just look for novelty don't don't care about performance but it's certainly missing something because in if we're once again taking inspiration as from biological evolution then optimization is a part of it survival of the fittest is a part of that but it's interesting in the way that it differs from how evolutionary algorithms are typically how they typically instantiate kind of competition um, typically competition is global in evolution algorithm, everything is competing with everything else. And if we look at life, um, the existence of a bacteria doesn't mean that you can't have a bear. Um, or the, so competition is not global. Um, when you look at those two examples of a niche, like a bacteria and a bear, um, both of these things exist. There's actually many different kinds of bacteria, many different kinds of bear. But if you look at their their fitness, like which we could say is like how quickly they replicate over time, the bear is is much 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 worse. It's much, much slower replicating, taking, takes years as opposed to like minutes or hours for bacteria. And if we had global competition, then we would converge maybe to the bacteria-like solution. And so this paper was about introducing local competition into novelty search. The idea is let's, let's, um, let's again specify some kind of space of things we're interested in. So in this case, it was about virtual creatures, which are like ambulating two, uh, 3D robots. And we could say, let's describe a space of different kinds of robot morphologies that we're interested in. So in this case, our search space uh, describes not only the, um, the neural network controller for a robot, but actually the morphology of the robot itself, like how it's, how it's constructed, how many parts it has, um, the structure of the robot. And so let's say that we're interested in robots that span different sorts of widths and masses and heights, so different kinds of specifications of how large they could be. And what we want to find is actually robots that ambulate very quickly within every part of that space. And so we could say like, there'll, there'll be like these really lumbering, large, barely moving 
um, enormous robots that are kind of just kind of slowly going through the space. There'll be these kinds of quadruped robots about the size of kind of like a horse or something that are actually quick and moving fast. And there's like little snake-like robots that are very, very tiny, but are able to kind of move quickly within their own niche. And and what this algorithm will do will illuminate all the all of the kind of optimal solutions or or locally optimal solutions within each part of this behavior space, um, or sorry, this morphology space. And at the end, we'll have a picture of kind of the, this kind of menagerie of of different kinds of robots. That and the hope is that they'll have a little bit more resemblance to the kinds of things that we see. Um, on Earth, we, in Earth, we also see this kind of uh, the illumination of all the different possible ways to make a life on Earth, and this is kind of motivated by a similar kind of analogy there. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely an interesting combination here of fitness and novelty, and there's a really interesting point you make towards the end of the paper and the discussion section. You say that so. Maybe just to give a little more context on what I remember from your paper, you experimented with a few different setups here, almost ablating this idea of fitness and novelty and how they combine. So you experimented with fitness alone, novelty alone, novelty search with global fitness competition, what you were mentioning, and then novelty search with local fitness competition. And you you note that prior successes with searching for novelty alone demonstrate that combining it with local competition isn't necessary. And so your experiments, even though this local competition addition seemed to work pretty well, does not contradict earlier success. And maybe getting to the main idea and what I thought you said was really interesting is that it is sometimes most natural to express and encourage the desired outcome of evolution in this case, a morphologically diverse collection of competent creatures as a combination of loosely connected drives. Could you linger on that statement a bit? The articulation of of loosely connected drives struck me as really interesting, and I'm curious how you think about this. That's an interesting choice of phrase, and I'll have to reconstruct from from 10 years ago kind of uh, what I I meant by that. Um, That could have come from me or Ken or both of us. Um, I, I guess one direction I could take it is that I think understanding that this kind of local competition concept exists also in nature is humbling for us as humans in the sense that we often think of ourselves as the kind of the necessary culmination of this process of evolution. But if we think about our our fitness relative to the fitness of other animals or bacteria, for example, our fitness we, we, takes us a long, long time to reproduce, decades, and I still haven't actually yet, um, but it takes a long time. And um, we balloon from a single cell up to the scale of, of trillions of cells. And our, our kind of our contribution to the next generation is again, one cell. So it's kind of like one cell balloon up to trillions of cell, one cell. This really strange, inefficient dance. And for the bacteria, it's kind of a much you know, simpler, more quick, quick dance. But from this perspective, what that means is that it's not the achievement of the objective of, of kind of fitness that makes us interesting or compelling. From, from the perspective of biological evolution, it was trying out lots and lots of different things without any kind of cohesive goal and stumbled upon us. And we actually are, in some sense, you could say like um, a really, really inefficient solution. And that's a really strange way of thinking about search. 
Um, it's certainly not how we approach, approach search when we're actually trying to create, let's say, like a you know, powerful AI system. I'm not saying that we should approach it in this way, but it's it just sort of it turns on the head kind of how we might view evolution. Um, not that it's that we are some sort of elevated product of evolution, but just we're some you know tiny branch of evolution that even evolution doesn't consider to be too successful. Um, and I, I think it's just kind of, a, kind of a crazy thing to think about. That is really humbling when you put it in a context like that. Just the idea that we humans, maybe locally in the space of all things evolution is produced within a, a very particular niche, we might be considered a more elite species than some others in particular ways. But to what you're saying, when we abstract that, we get to the higher level of evolution as this global process, thinking like, yeah, humans are pretty inefficient and not that great for the higher level goal is, is a really humbling thought to have, like you said. That's definitely not a, a way I'd thought about the outcome of humans within the evolution process before. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's something that's still hard for me to wrap my heads around sometimes because it's so alien, I think, to the, the way of the thought that we usually approach, approach it from. Yeah. So let's maybe make some strides towards the evolution through large models paper. And as a segue, let's discuss this paper you had while you were at Uber AI, which you pointed out was more of a review paper designing neural networks through neuroevolution. There are a lot of different threads discussed in this paper, and I suppose different areas that are of interest to people working on neuroevolution in general. So could you maybe give me a rundown of, for you and your particular set of research problems, what the important points of this paper were? So I think the, there's a couple high-level threads in this paper. And I think one thing that's interesting to me is the relationship between neuroevolution and deep learning and why certain ideas seem to come up in neuroevolution that later could be utilized within deep learning. And so I, so I guess you know, overall, I'm kind of interested in, in kind of the, the, how innovation happens and that kind of stuff. And so in this paper, we talk about, um, for example, some powerful ideas from evolutionary algorithms um, that may be more or less relevant to deep learning as well. And one of those is the idea of indirect encoding. So indirect encoding is the idea that although the human brain is composed of um, like, I can't remember, like 100 billion neurons or, and 100 trillion synapses, the genome itself, our human genome is, I think, about 3 billion base pairs. And so there's just not enough information to specify all the parts of the brain. And what the genome actually does is specify the unfolding process through which you know, a human develops. And it specifies maybe the learning rules of the brain and how the brain structures itself and how we learn from experience indirectly. And it's, I think one of the ideas in, in evolutionary algorithm that said is maybe the most powerful ideas because that's like key to how we got to where we are, um, how humans evolved. And it turns out that that idea also can have relevance to deep learning. Um, so there was a indirect encoding method called hypernet that was originally come up with the kind of in the neuroevolution world where you might, this was dealing with the problem of how can we actually scale up neuroevolution to evolve larger neural networks? Like I said earlier, some of these networks are being evolved or just really tiny. Um, and how could you actually have this 
um, disconnect between the size of the genome and having a really large neural network that you're actually um, evolving. And the, the solution to HyperNeat was to, and this is an idea also from Ken Stanley um, at UCF, uh, this was the idea of having a smaller neural network basically paint a pattern of connectivity over a larger neural network. So you actually would have a larger neural network that you would embed in some geometric space. You'd give coordinates to each of the points, each of the neurons in, that, in this larger network. And this network could be as large as you want it to be, as long as it's embedded in this geometric space. And the smaller network, you would query it with, with um, connections between neurons in that space with their coordinates. So it would be kind of like a network that would take in two pairs of coordinates and output the weight. And this would be a way that you could decouple the size of this smaller neural network from the size of this larger neural network. And, and so you could basically have you know, networks of, of indefinite size that you could, have, could um, evolve these connectivity patterns for. And that actually um, was the inspiration for something called hypernetworks, which is popular in deep learning, where you have a similar mechanism where you parameterize a, um, a larger neural network or, or a layer in a larger neural network through um, a smaller neural network that generates those parameters dynamically. So just kind of an example of how I think evolutionary algorithms provide like a pretty rich playground because you don't have to worry about differentiability. You can just do whatever basically an evolutionary algorithm can kind of work within really strange search spaces. And it can be a kind of fruitful place to create new ideas. And then later you can worry about how to make them differentiable and plug them into kind of um, larger architectures. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ideas kind of coming up here and maybe speaking to how neural evolution as a technique for, I, I was about to say optimizing DNNs, but I really need to be careful about saying that because I guess in some sense, that's exactly what we're not going for, even if the eventual goal is to find ones that do what we want. But these, these techniques for evolving neural networks really are, are acting pretty differently from the standard gradient descent based methods. And one thing you point out in another paper too, is that the success of genetic algorithms in this, in optimization, when that is what indeed what we want to do is that this implies densely sampling in the region around some origin is sufficient to find better solutions than those found by gradient based methods, because those often get stuck in local optima and Rather than doing that, we can actually strive for behavioral diversity in our neural networks and maybe sample um, in some particular space of behavior in order to generate things that are kind of different and maybe even better. Do you have any intuitions just about the structure of, I suppose, optimization landscapes or the search spaces that neural networks exist in? that you've taken away from your findings in this branch of research? Yeah, I think my intuitions have changed over the years um, with regards to how deceptive a landscape is and the differences in how maybe an evolutionary algorithm explores in like parameter space around a particular point than let's say um, like a policy gradient algorithm explores in kind of action space or like a DQN network uses epsilon greedy to kind of explore a little bit randomly locally. So there's definitely differences, you know, how, how you explore in parameter space might have like a, a different kind of bias, but there are a lot of other exploration methods that, that exist um, in the, the deep learning world that are more sophisticated than that. And I think I no longer am a 
ideologue when it comes to evolutionary algorithms being you know the only way to do it. And I think a lot of the principles can be embodied in either space. So there's I think something called noisy nets where you can do parameter space exploration with with RL methods. Um, and I think there's no reason to you know suspect that evolutionary algorithms are, are magical or different in some kind of underlying way. Um, I do think that the idea of a population, exploring the population, is an idea that still I think is percolating into the deep learning world. And there's like population-based training, which um, I think researchers at DeepMind often use, which is proves useful for them. Um, but we talk about neural networks these days. Usually, it's you know one singular artifact and not kind of like a population of neural networks that's that's kind of created. Um, I guess one last thing I would say is where my intuitions were very wrong was coming when it comes to like deception and kind of uh, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and that, you know, large neural networks are different. Um, and they're doing, you know, supervised learning or self-supervised learning. It's been an incredibly successful paradigm, machine learning. And deception there has not been a, an issue. Um, it's interesting. Um, so, so one kind of open question there for me is, the kinds of representation that are discovered by um, you know, GPT-sized networks, is there is it possible that like a more compact neural network could could represent those better? I guess there's work that's that's done in distill, distillation and things like that. But I do wonder if you know the human process of how humans learn about things is not you know through next word prediction um, or one of these kind of self-supervised objectives. You know, not at least entirely that way. And we do seem to have kind of you know different kinds of representations, I imagine, than than these these networks do. And there's just some curiosity there about even if there isn't deception per se, maybe there's better generalization or robustness or deeper understanding that could be enabled by different kinds of learning rules that are less driven intrinsically by you know kind of a simple objective of just minimizing um, you know surprise in the next frame or something. Yeah. One thing that stuck out in what you just said to me was the fact that we humans have different kinds of representations of things. So when I think about words, you know, I, I hear the word car. I don't just have this representation that is, you know, a length 300 vector of numbers, right? It's like I have, well, maybe the, uh, the sequence of letters that spells car. I have the variety of cars I've seen in my life. I have the collection of experiences that I associate with cars. And in some sense, there's a diversity of representation there. And so one thing that makes me wonder is if there's anything to the idea of evolving systems to coax them into novelty in terms of how they, they represent particular ideas or words or collections of words. It's definitely an interesting idea. And it does seem like humans, as we're embodied in the, in the world, have very flexible representations. Like a chair can be a place to sit, it can be a weapon, it can be raw material for fire or something, and it's really dependent on the context. And it may be that you know neural networks already have those kinds of you know flexible representations. Um, there's like you know I think a lot of people will actively debate like the importance of something like embodiment and whether you need. Um, neural networks to actually be in the world acting. I'm a little bit um, more agnostic than I used to be on that front. I think I used to be kind of more in the camp of embodiment, super important. And now I'm not really so sure. <laughs> um, it's it's almost like that, I guess I'm drawn to things that are like kind of almost philosophical experiments. And, and the GPT style of training a language model is almost like 
you know, a practical thought experiment about how far can this disembodied paradigm go? And it, it turns out it can go pretty far. Like it's, it's pretty incredible, you know, what, what these models that have no direct experience of the world, only interacting through these systems of interlinked words, how they seemingly, seemingly have a comprehension of things. So uh, I think we live in an interesting time uh, philosophically uh, where like some of these kind of longstanding debates actually get kind of decided empirically in some ways. Um, and I, <laughs> my intuitions are no longer as strong as they used to be, but I think it's, yeah, it's fascinating to think about where these things could go. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Even from, as you said, the purely philosophical perspective, there's these debates of how do I come to know about the world? Does it come from my experience of the things around me? Or can I just learn from things like pure words? One thought experiment I brought up in an interview I, I just did was, you know, the when Mary saw the color red, where for anyone who's unfamiliar, Mary learns everything there is to know about the color red, you know, how it acts on the eyes, things like that. And then eventually she has the experience of seeing the color red. And the question is, did she actually learn anything about it? And my intuitions have always said, well, yes, absolutely. There is something new for her there. And maybe the color red is, is a particular example in the space of things we could possibly come to have knowledge about via just language versus experience. But as you said, the success we've seen of GPT-3 and other large language models does point to maybe there is something more to just the the knowledge we can gain about things through language. I know people have different opinions on whether GPT-3 truly has knowledge of anything, but in some senses, it can speak coherent sentences about the world. And so if you're willing to take that as evidence of some sort of knowledge, then I, I agree there's a very interesting epistemological question going on there. Yeah, I don't know too much to, to add to that beyond that. Yeah, the, the color red seems to you know, ask this phenomenological question also about the difference between language and the phenomenal experience of a color. And um, there's a whole can of worms there. We probably shouldn't open. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely that's been like the, the subject of a lot of debate, like whether models eventually could have that kind of phenomenal experience. Um, and I, I basically have no idea, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's let's maybe skip over that question for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's sort um, of like this dangerous debate that always uh, can lead an interview astray, I think. <laughs> Indeed. I do want to segue over to this very recent exciting paper you had, Evolution Through Large Models. And I think that the, the survey paper on neuroevolution kind of provides the seeds for a few different ideas that this paper is, is trying to attack in terms of producing different behaviors and this idea that researchers in the open-endedness space while they've come up with algorithms that begin to produce interesting behavior, there does seem to be this problem of at some point there is a kind of convergence and you don't continue to see evolution in behaviors. And so we seem to not be at a place where we have what I believe you term strong open-endedness, this idea of just continual evolution and complexification of behavior. So can you tell me a little bit about the evolution through large models paper, how this came about and, and what you were seeking to do with the paper? Yeah, so uh, the paper is sort of a, a whopper of a paper. I think it's like 40 or 50 pages. And it attempts to do, I think, two main things. 
and the the first main thing is to explore what does evolution evolutionary algorithms what do they mean in the context of large models is there a possible synergy or are they just you know should we forget about evolutionary algorithms altogether um and our answer is we think there's a synergy um and the, the second question is what you're pointing to about open-endedness which is like also having a, a a theory or a vision for what is the current kind of blocker to progress in a more a strong more strongly open-ended system strongly open-ended system one that, that keeps going indefinitely um as opposed to the current systems which tend to kind of peter out after after some fixed amount of time so what's the blocker there and i can kind of dive into both those pieces uh, i can start i can start with the, the the first one which maybe is simpler to answer which is about the synergy between language models and evolution i think one way to think about this like a possible synergy is that language models might enable moving from evolution in the space of parameters so like a lot of evolutionary algorithms just kind of introduce random perturbations of parameters instead of doing that we might elevate an evolutionary algorithm more to the the mimetic level uh, evolution of ideas and when we think about the human mind and how we work with ideas we we tend to perturb them in particular ways that maintain some kind of structure. We understand something about the, the domain, domain in which we're innovating. And so one way to make this more concrete is that, so in this paper, the way that we approached this was to use um, models trained on code, uh, in particular models trained on code diffs. Um, a diff being when you make a, like a commit on, um, uh, in a revision control system, you'll make a change to code and you'll have like a commit message that describes that change. And, and at the end of, of the day, you might have a repo that has like a history of all these different changes. Instead of modeling the code itself, you can model the changes to code. And the powerful thing there is that the, the distribution of changes is kind of exactly what you want to understand to move across the manifold of code, to, to make changes that, that have some sense to them. So like um, there's a history in um, evolutionary algorithms of something called genetic programming, which is taking, trying to evolve code but the approach is just to basically make random changes in different places in the code. And you can imagine that while this can sometimes work and sometimes work well, it's um, kind of a haphazard way of changing a program and doesn't really map on to how humans do it. And while that might not be a huge problem, it also limits the kind of complexity of code that you can evolve. And so the way that we approach this was we're taking these um, diff models that were trained uh, by other researchers at OpenAI, other researchers at OpenAI, we did our team didn't, didn't train them, so I don't want to take credit for them. But but we use those as an as this intelligent mutation operator um, to search the space of code. So you you could take a program and use these diff operators to to introduce a change to that program, and you could also have a feedback loop where that uh, that mutation operator itself could improve over time. That is, if it introduced a, a promising change to a program you could fine tune on that example. And what we found was that there's a lot of benefit to doing that, um, that actually you could kind of accelerate the search by having a self-improving mutation operator. So come from the from the bigger scale, it's kind of thinking about if you are a human programmer and you're kind of making changes to code, this is the kind of process you might go through is you would, you would learn through successful changes, how to make better changes. And it does kind of evoke the idea of, of how we might riff with ideas and get better at riffing with ideas. I think it's got like a powerful concept here. Yeah, the the idea of, of a self-improving mutation operator is is really interesting to me. Could you 
maybe linger a second on just what that self-improvement looks like. I know you kind of gave some, some analogies, but it'll be really interesting to hear. Yeah. So in the paper, what we were doing um, was using this code evolution system to evolve Python programs just in, in plain text that would represent ambulating robots. And the reason for that, that it was this robotic domain was sort of um, more of the open-endedness motivation. You'd also, you could also do it in other domains that would be less, um, say, exotic. Um, and similar to the setup in the evolving a diversity of virtual creatures, we're trying to evolve a diversity of these different robots. Um, this is kind of like in the spirit of open-endedness, you want to kind of create a diverse set of examples. And, and so when we were evolving, we start with just a single seed program. So um, basically the, the idea, maybe I should actually segue into talking just a little bit about the, the second prong of this, because it only will make sense if I bring that in, I think. So the first prong is being like, how do we make, how do we merge evolution with language models? The second prong being, how does this relate to the challenge of open-endedness? Um, and so this, this uh, second prong was about um, first creating a lot of training examples in this new domain um, that the language model didn't have any experience with. So we basically invented a new subdomain of coding where we would create these Python programs that represented these robots. And the idea was if we had a language model that, that didn't have any experience in this new domain, how could we quickly bootstrap into this new domain, uh, into expertise in this new, new domain? And the idea was that um, we could take just a single example of a barely functional robot, seed an evolutionary process with this. And if this evolutionary process was driven to discover um, a diversity of high quality robots, then we could actually bootstrap into this domain and fine tune a language model on this domain so that it would actually become competent within it. So it would be a way that the evolutionary process could get back to the, the language model. And also um, that because this domain was about um, creating new robots, actually inventing robots, you could say, there'd be a way to tie it to a grander challenge in open-endedness, which is that of continual innovation. And the, the kind of the shape of the theory there or the vision we had was that a challenge in open-endedness is how do you keep there being innovation or things to innovate upon. And the insight is that there's a, uh, you could say an, an era of human innovation where we started introducing detached conditional artifacts into the world. And so we'd modify our environment and that would provide a new kind of opportunity for further innovation to, to build upon. So in a way that a, um, that keys don't make much sense in the absence of doors and locks um, or that a giraffe is a solution to the, is kind of like a, something that, that becomes possible when you have trees with leaves on it. And that's a kind of a good solution to that. There's an idea that, that kind of changing the physical environment, leaving, a, leaving something upon it, will create a new context in which further in, invention would be necessary. So, the, the, so kind of, uh, I know there's a lot of things going on in this paper, which is, uh, makes it a little bit challenging to, to explain. Um, <laughs> to get back to your original question, <laughs> um, in practice, the mutation operator, which was about like, how do we take this original seed program and create lots of um, uh, diverse <laughs> morpho robot morphologies um, from it, is that we would reinforce 
all the successful mutations that would create new things from old things. So whether it would create like a different kind of thing. So actually it was like a, a new kind of morphology and it get kind of saved that way, or whether it was an improvement on a previous morphology, it also gets saved. So in that way we could have all of these examples of, of, of um, a program and a modification of the program that, that did something good. And we would kind of save those trending examples and then fine tune the, this um, mutation network on those examples to make it um, better at doing things within this domain. So I think that was a, a kind of a convoluted example, uh, sorry, explanation. Um, and we can dive more into it to kind of de decipher it, um, or we could, I, we could also try afresh if we want. Yeah, I think this is um, a good a good start and explanation. Maybe we can we can break things down a little bit and dive into a few aspects of the paper just to think sure. about how this actually sort of breaks apart and and works implementationally. So maybe focusing on the the evolutionary algorithm itself, you give us a couple of ideas here. I think some of them were hinted at in the previous works we discussed. You talk about implementing ELM within a quality diversity algorithm. And in particular, one thing you were pointing at earlier, I think, related to this, this map elites algorithm that you use here. Could you tell me a little bit about that and maybe how what's going on in there relates to some of the, the top level objectives? Right. Yeah. So the idea of a quality diversity algorithm is that you want to discover artifacts that are both diverse and high quality. And there are a couple different QD algorithms. Uh, one we did we talked about a little bit earlier was the novelty search with local competition algorithm that was used in the evolving a diversity of virtual creatures paper that we talked about, um, and a different one is called Map Elites, which was uh, which came from John Baptiste Moray and Jeff Clune, and it's a um, kind of like a, a very simple algorithm that does a QD process in a algorithmically really kind of um, elegant way, and the idea is that you have you're a space of diversity. So in this, in the case of Elm, it's the believe that uh, height and width of these and mass of these robots. And so you have this kind of three-dimensional space. And what you do is you break that into, into subcubes. You have this kind of larger cube, you break it into subcubes. And each of these different subcubes form different elements of a map, a multi-dimensional map. And the algorithm simply proceeds by every element of this map just contains a single individual, which is the, the best, the highest fitness individual so far that's discovered within that region of the behavior space. So like for like a low mass, very low height, low width creature, you would, you'd be able to accumulate one example there and it would only compete with similar examples. So it could only give, be overwritten by a higher performing example that kind of had that same rough uh, type of um, morphology. And so the idea is that over time, you, this map, as you keep um, optimizing, will get better and better examples and kind of at the end, hopefully will illuminate kind of the possibilities that exist for any of these different kinds of niches. And so you'll have like a, a diverse, high quality set. And it's, it's kind of like a pretty simple algorithm to code up and it's pretty um, robust and, and useful. And so we use that algorithm in this paper as, as a simple QD algorithm. And the aim again was to um, accumulate a lot of different training examples of these Python programs in this new domain that could later be used to uh, fine tune a model into competence into this new domain. So it's basically inventing its own training data to, um, to get better at 
creating these ambulating um, robots that were represented by Python programs. Yeah, there's a few interesting things about this MapElites process. So the way you introduce it is that it really spans user-specified dimensions of solution diversity. And here you were pointing at these dimensions of of width and height and mass of of the ambulating robots. And so my kind of two-part question here about this is, in general, it seems like the size of the grid, perhaps the construction of the map, the behavior characterizations that you actually choose could influence perhaps the the eventual open-endedness or whatever downstream behavior you'd like to see of a procedure or pipeline that uses it. And so I'm curious if you have intuitions of what that looks like in terms of, you know, I'm intervening on what this map elites grid looks like and then the eventual results of that. But then also if in this paper you experimented with other sets of dimensions of diversity for the map elites grid. Yeah, so the dimensions of diversity are a key intervention point for an experimenter to describe what kind of products the system will will end up making. And I think I recall, we didn't actually do too much experimentation with different measures of diversity here. And it does point to a, well, a problem in the field, um, which is how do you let this emerge naturally? Or how do you let this behavior space continually evolve and change without um, humans having to hard code it? And that's a pretty interesting problem. And it gets to the heart of what is interesting, like just as a question. And I think there's different positions there. One position would be that you know what's interesting is ultimately subjective, and it relates to particularities of um, the human perceptual system and the human condition. And if that's the case, then automating it would be pretty difficult. Um, and there's another position, which is maybe that interestingness could be more absolute. And I think the first position maybe is more intuitive, but I'm actually more a kind of proponent of the second position that that, that interestingness could be more absolute. And one way of looking at this, uh, this is that um, among humans, there's a, there's a kind of diversity of different things that different humans will find interesting. But typically, even if you are in some kind of niche thing that no one else really cares about, you can explain the context in which, why that is interesting. And so for example, you know, if I became obsessed with really particular acrobatic movements or something that maybe would be really hard for you to appreciate, in theory, I could explain, you know, what it is about this or like, what is it about my particular art style that what makes it difficult or impressive to do? And so I have more, I guess you could say faith or more, um, uh, confidence that you could imagine a system that at least could explain to you why something was so compelling, why it was difficult. And there's you could, there's a kind of uh, a theory of uh, what we call impressiveness that uh, Ken Stanley and I had in a paper um, that kind of gets into like what that might look like. Um, that's more kind of like philosophical and abstract. Practically speaking, um, it may be that because we want open-endedness for human purposes, it's going to be tied to human ideas of interestingness and human ideas of what is useful to us. And so it may be that the only way to kind of get into this deeply is to involve more humans in the loop um, and have humans that are kind of creating a, a space of interestingness that the algorithms are exploring. And so it may be that purely automated open-ended systems might, um, might ultimately 
be of really interesting kind of theoretical use, but for an open-ended system to make maybe an impact in our own in our lives or be useful to us, that it will have to be imbued with something about um, human interestingness, which will have to come from feedback from humans. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating question there, and I can see how there's an important weight on these sorts of results we we might expect from utilizing these methods, whether, as you said, interestingness is indeed something subjective or or there is a kind of objective characteristic to it. And I think what you said about the fact that I can explain why something is interesting to me, even if you per se don't necessarily care about it or find it interesting yourself, does point to maybe some objective characteristics. And again, I think that it does boil down to how we're we're thinking about what interesting means. Because when I, you know, think about my when I explain why something is interesting to me to somebody, and they're like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. You know, I feel like there's this very vague there there's a communication of something there. And when we are saying the words, oh that's interesting, oh that's cool, there's something very vague and and loose about what exactly is being said there. Like maybe that just means, oh, that's unusual, for instance. And, you know, maybe that is a useful way to think about interestingness. But there there is a really important philosophical question, I suppose, tied in with the the practical aspects here that you're you're pointing at. Yeah, and and it's definitely true that colloquially when we're talking about what's interesting, there's different elements of our phenomenal experience or intellectual experience that we can bring in, whether it's surprise, uh, appreciation, um, like a deep understanding of, of what makes something possibly a good stepping stone to something else. Like it's provocative. It's, and a lot of this all gets kind of mixed together. I think it becomes more explicit when you think about the incentives we put into science or something. For example, like science, for a paper to be accepted at a conference, usually there's something about novelty. Um, in that paper. It has to be new in some way. And you could argue about whether that's a good criterion or how it's uh, quantified or, or attempted to be quantified. Um, but it seems like, you know, there it's it's more explicit, like the, we're, we're considering novelty as a part of a contribution to science because we believe that that's what's going to drive um, further, further use for us as, as humans, that like something about novelty will lead to future, future papers that will lead to us learning something new and hopefully making something new. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, maybe maybe digging, digging ourselves out of this rabbit hole a little bit to <laughs> <laughs> get back to um, the, the top level parts of the paper. So we got here from, from discussing map elites and what is going on there. And I thought that the way you articulated this whole process of what's going on in the paper as this three-stage invention pipeline is maybe a good way to wrap our heads around what exactly the goal is and how we get there. So from what I remember, you have ELM in this first stage. So we're searching for a diverse set of example artifacts. Um, So as you were saying earlier, we start with this kind of handwritten, maybe bad example of an ambulating robot, and it's barely functional. And then through our, our map elites algorithm, that, so first this hand-designed solution is evaluated, it's placed somewhere onto our, our map grid, and then we iterate on that, right? And eventually we are able to 
get a collection of programs through fine-tuning the diff model after we've done some iteration through this map-elites algorithm. And so now we've got this set of a collection of programs, right? This is some initial training data. Can we maybe move forward a little bit into what actually happens from there? Right, right. Yeah, so you accumulate these uh, this training data through using the, the diff model as an intelligent mutation operator. You fine-tune that mutation operator to improve it. And yeah, the product of that is just this diverse training set of examples. So then the next step, after you have this training set of examples, which are in kind of a domain that the original coding language model had no experience within. Um, and no experience within because we invented this, this subdomain, but you can imagine there'll be like domains like this in the future where you just don't have much training data. Um, so then we can take this um, language model that's trained on code, not on diffs, and fine tune it further with examples, the examples that we've um, collected. And thereby, now the language model um, is bootstrapped into this new domain of expertise. Now it can, um, has knowledge of how to, to make these kinds of Python programs that will represent diverse, high quality, uh, ambulating robots. And then the, 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 the large scale kind of purpose here is in the third, third step. Like, so, so we started with the, we create training examples, we fine tune a language model on those training examples, and then we want to create a conditional inventor. This is kind of connected to the, the, the larger scale vision, larger scale vision being that conditional invention, kind of like reacting to a situation with an invention already in it with your own invention to add to that situation, add that and to solve a new problem um, will require an agent that can perceive an environment and then output an appropriate invention to that environment. And so uh, we take the fine tuned language model and we append to it um, using some kind of model surgery, a, uh, a vision component so that it can now perceive the world. And then we train that model that conditional inventor with reinforcement learning to output inventions that are appropriate to different landscapes so we have some different landscapes like uh, i think we have like a hilly landscape and there's a landscape with a wall on the left on the right and this is kind of a proof proof of concept as part of a larger research vision of creating an inventor that can solve simple problems but eventually you would hope to kind of involve the, the open-ended process where you have multiple of these um, conditional inventors that are responding to each other. And um, so we, 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 we've bootstrapped into competence, into invention. And then from there, the open-ended process of invention and responding to inventions could kind of go, go on. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it together. And one thing I, I have to wonder, since you're speaking to, this is really where we're introducing the facet of, of large models and their influence on these processes is you, you did report some results from models of different sizes that you experimented with. I think you went from like 0.1 million up to 680 million parameters. And I guess what, what I'm curious about is what you found about the size of these models and how that impacted the conditional invention you saw at the end of your pipeline? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'll have to remind myself actually of those those results. Um, I think ultimately on the, the RL stage, we may not have done much in the way of scaling experiments. I'll have to see if that's true. Um, but certainly in the earlier stages, we did look at how um, model size related to kind of ability to to generalize either in terms of like um, 
test loss of kind of how um, language models would would do on held out examples from other runs if they could still kind of um, predict them well. Um, and I think basically what we found was that there was seemed to like at above maybe it was like 300 million parameters there wasn't much um, improvement from from model scaling, which is kind of like an interesting result because typically it's you know um, larger models um, uh, tend to perform better. But I think the the kind of complication there is that we didn't do kind of an exhaustive study of how data quantity and scale kind of intersect and whether you know if we kind of kept scaling up a couple um, degrees of um, orders of magnitude in the weights and in, in data size, whether whether we we see a different result. So um, I think it's a bit inconclusive, but I think so far, you know, we didn't see kind of the benefits of scale maybe that we would kind of intuitively expect. Um, but I guess I would imagine, although, you know, it's not based on a whole lot beyond, beyond intuition, that that with enough data um, that we probably would probably see benefits from scale here like we do see in other, in other domains. Mm, sure. Maybe popping up another level just to discuss some of the the qualitative observations you had in this paper. So again, reiterating the goal was creating the somnambulating robots and we had them in maybe a diversity of environments. I believe you mentioned some particular structures that came up in different environments in which those robots were, were being evolved. But just subjectively, what were what surprised you and I suppose what did you find the most interesting about the the experiments you did? Yeah, it was I guess um one thing is an experiment that's always fun is, is waking up to new results and seeing kind of the crazy things that have, that your system discovers. And that's one of the particular joys of probably reinforcement learning in general, but open-endedness maybe in particular, because you're explicitly trying to kind of create a diversity of stuff comes out of a single run. And uh some of the there's some of the videos that are associated with the paper is kind of fun to watch, and I think um, for whatever reason, you know, a, a tweet about the paper went semi-viral, and I think one of the main reasons was because just the, the, the strangeness or the compellingness of just seeing these kind of artificial creatures that have like a little bit of life-life motion, um, and there's some striking things about them just to observe them. One thing is like uh, you know it's kind of like evocative, but it, it rediscovered the wheel. Um, it's kind of interesting. Like there's like there's a, this ro ro rolling wheel that was you know discovered. Um, and it's just you know like because invention was one of the motivations. And I think we didn't nece necessarily foresee that kind of happening, and so it was kind of like a cool result. But a lot of the creatures just there's a certain kind of complexity to them. There's an organization how they move, um, and yeah, overall the project worked better than I was expecting uh, in sense of the results. And I think it's yeah a, a very fun domain, I think, that we, we use in the sense of just how kind of evocative it is. Yeah, I, I remember that tweet thread and the videos were very fun to watch. I will make sure to include um, a link to that in the show notes for anyone who also wants to watch those videos. Maybe getting to some of what you'd like to see kind of coming out of this paper, because you also mentioned in your Twitter thread, you know, your excitement at seeing how people build upon this method. You do comment in the paper that we still do not yet know how to make an algorithm that exhibits genuinely open-ended divergence, even though it does seem like this paper is a pretty meaningful step forward in that direction. Could you tell me about 
what you feel to be some of the particular blockers remaining and what you think some of the most promising or exciting future directions building on this work are? Hmm. That's a really good question. It's hard hard to grapple with the, the, the full complexity of that, but I'd say a couple of things. So one of the key challenges in open-endedness is interestingness. We've kind of hit on that several times already. And that kind of seemingly always comes up in discussions of this. Like, how do you quantify that? How do you have that develop naturally and still remain somewhat grounded to human interest? So I think that's a profound problem. And we don't, I think, directly tackle that. Although indirectly, we might, in the sense that if you had a process that was let's say in this 2D invention domain, and you had two inventors that were continually kind of creating new things um, that because it's grounded in in a 2D physical environment in which we have intuitions about that we're likely to find it interesting. Like that's the question, why do we find biological evolution interesting? You know, we look at all the animals around us. Well, it's because they're salient to us because they're in a similar environment to us. They're of interest to us. They could eat us, we could eat them. Um, We can observe them. just, you know, everything, we're, we're evolved to kind of be in that context. And so one way of kind of getting around this is maybe having a world that's similar enough in spirit that has some of the same physical constraints could be interesting to us. So um, that's a, a big wrangly, a big knot of a, of a question. Um, and I think there's probably still, you know, insight that that, that needs to be had there. Um, this, the second kind of open question is, well, we have this vision, let's say, of, of kind of conditional invention where you know, agents are continually riffing upon one another, but we haven't, what's under specified is what is it they're trying to do? What are these agents doing? And what is the the nature of this kind of open-ended system like? And so we're a little bit vague on the details there because it's something that um, we're still working on. And I think there's lots of other researchers in this area who might have really great ideas on how to proceed there. Um, But that's the question, like what what should the rules of the system be? Um, How should these agents interact? So yeah, a lot of work to be done here. I think one of the things I, I, I'm kind of excited to see how people react to is just the the, the technology itself, the the using language models for evolution. Um, and while we did it in this sort of domain of ambulating creatures, that's kind of arbitrary in some sense. And there's lots of ways that this technology could potentially be used. And we highlight ways in the paper of using it with um, uh, models that exist already. Um, so like that you don't have to use these special diff models necessarily. There's, you can, through prompt engineering, you can create sort of diff like prompts and that, that would be a way just to, to kind of experiment with this technology, um, right now. And yeah, it doesn't necessarily even have to be confined to the, to the, the space of, of computer programs, even though that's kind of what we were working with so that you could use evolution in other kinds of qualitative domains. And we'd be interested to kind of see how that would work as well. Um, so I think those are the, the main main threads. I mean, definitely a lot of unsolved problems here and really curious to see how people will, will move forward here. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem like there's a lot of different ways this can be built upon. I'm also very excited to see how people follow on to it. I think this is maybe a good place to move into the the last section of questions I had. And this is perhaps wrapping up with a thread that I think has persisted through our conversation so far. At the beginning, we were talking about how you got interested in AI research in the first place. And I think there are a lot of natural 
really interesting questions that arise from the particular research you do. What does it mean to be interesting? Many different things like that. And it does seem pretty clear that your your open-endedness work, at least the insights one might gather from it, seem to have some implications for how we think about just living our lives and, and chasing goals. You, you did write a book on this that um, I think speaks to some of these questions. Could you tell me a little bit about the ideas there and just some of the ways your research has influenced your, your own thinking about your, your life and, and your work? Yeah, I think when I first got into research, I didn't expect for it to impact my personal life or how I, my philosophy of the world. Um, but through working with search algorithms and taking them seriously, maybe that was just inevitable. So yeah, Ken Stanley and I ended up writing a book together called uh, The Myth of the Objective. Um, or Sorry, it's called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, colon, The Myth of the Objective. And it's basically inspired by the generality of search, that search is a kind of ubiquitous process and that the novelty search experiments we did where searching for novelty could actually sometimes solve problems uh, more effectively than searching directly for the objective, which is kind of like a Zen-like result that not searching can sometimes outperform searching. Um, it, it, it does have, I think, a message for us on a broader scale, which is that we embody search in our society and our personal lives in many different ways, and that we seemingly today really take objectives and kind of like kind of guidance towards a particular end goal that we want to reach like really seriously and maybe short-sightedly. And, and just, it's just interesting how there are lessons from search that we just don't take deeply enough. And this kind of manifests from maybe the way that objectives kind of impede um, basic research in ways that objectives impede kind of our educational system teaching to the test and that kind of stuff. Um, and that even our personal lives as we attempt to be happy or to find a partner or um, find a career, that we can really go into kind of dead ends that are in some sense, you could say obvious. And from some level of understanding, obvious that these would be really hard endeavors and likely to be deceptive. But it's just societally, just in the in the, the the water that we swim in, I think there's this kind of pressure to to meet objectives and to frame our lives in terms of objectives. And so there's just something interesting there, and it definitely has impacted my own journey. And I I do think of myself sometimes as kind of a, a novelty searcher myself, and that I think has improved my life. Yeah, if you're willing to share, what has that looked like for you concretely? Do you feel that? Before beginning this research, are there maybe examples of ways in which you felt you were over-optimizing for particular objectives? And then now describing yourself as somebody who maybe lives out novelty search to an extent, what, what does that look like? Yeah, I think prior to working on novelty search, I don't think I had a kind of a cohesive philosophy of how accomplishing things worked or how innovation worked in general. And... I think working on that is kind of where I developed this kind of uh, uh, philosophy. It's actually challenging at the time, I think, to, I think when Ken first proposed the idea of novelty search, I, I was just a, um, I just arrived in Orlando where I was doing my PhD and I thought like, okay, this sounds pretty crazy. I don't know if this is going to work. 
Um, but then just through working on it and kind of thinking more deeply about it, eventually starts to, starts to sink in. Um, I think it's, I think I've been kind of willing in my career to kind of change directions. And I think partly that comes from a little bit of the ability to detach from the need to kind of keep pushing a particular direction to its pinnacle. And so for me, that's at some point I was on the academic track and I, um, I was a professor, professor in Copenhagen, and I, I gave up that professorship, and I kind of went into the, the startup world a bit, and that led to Uber AI and, and then to OpenAI. And also my research interests have, have kind of shifted in, in directions. That I think I've been, even though it's psychologically diff- difficult, I think, to let go of certain research directions and to kind of focus on other ones, um, there's something understanding that if I'm not interested in it, in it anymore, then there's just nothing I can really do. To, to force myself to be. And, and if that I believe is such a such a key driver in how I could actually discover something useful or interesting or, or um, important to myself, then I think there's like a little more affordance. I don't want to oversell it. I, I don't I'm not like some you know person who's just kind of wandering the world and searching for novelty. Um, but I do think it, it has shifted how I approach my life in, in subtle ways and sometimes less, you know, more explicit ways. Yeah, I, I get the sense from what you said there is this kind of happy medium, it does seem as though there are incentives as a researcher to perhaps keep pushing to the pinnacle in a certain direction of work. There's the sunk cost fallacy. I've already spent so much time here and maybe have an emotional attachment to it, but also maybe there are easy incremental gains to be had by just continuing to publish papers in this domain, even if it has ceased to be interesting or we've ceased to make large strides. And then on the other end, if we go in the complete opposite direction, we have you know just trying a bunch of different things, not really focusing on one. And it does seem to me like you've hit this kind of happy medium. And perhaps that that is something to be, to be sought of, I'm willing to really dig myself into a hole for something that truly fascinates me, but maybe I don't force myself into it longer than it, it remains interesting and productive. So I think this trade-off between truly going kind of into the, the novelty direction, what you're interested in, what, what you find compelling, and sort of the maybe the safer route of, of going a route that is secure, what that means like financially, psychologically, it's delicate. And I think it's probably like on a person by person basis, you know, what affordance for risk you have. Some of us, you know, maybe have a lot of commitments, don't have a lot of resources. Um, uh, there's this unfairness of life and, and kind of what we're allocated financially or, or what our support system is or, or what um, uh, the country that we're living within provides us. And so different people will have to kind of navigate that differently. And I think I've been lucky that I've, I've, I've had um, some ability to kind of take paths that are, are less trodden and a lot of the time I've gotten kind of lucky, like the neuroevolution direction that I went in, um, there's no reason to suspect necessarily that it should lead to kind of the position that I'm in now. And I've, I've got you know, some um, some luck in how that, that path unfolded. And the, the PhD advisor I had was really wonderful and, and kind of led to this kind of um, a nice outcome. And it, of course, following novelty is not guaranteed to lead to success. And that's... Yeah, uh, so I don't think that that shouldn't be the, the lesson to take from it, but but that sometimes it, it does, and sometimes it it is the only direction that you can go, um, in the sense that um, you may feel so compelled to pursue something, and maybe you just need permission to do it. 
So I think it's nice in some sense that there are search kind of results that, that highlight how kind of going your own direction can be beneficial, how it can be um, actually lead to kind of more success than kind of optimizing for the, the straight and narrow. Um, and I have a lot of sympathy for people that are just getting into machine learning now where it's such a crowded sea and so many, so much competition going towards um, maybe the, the same family of, of results. And um, I would encourage people to, yeah, to, to think on the strategic level a little bit too. And, and sometimes novelty or, or following your own interest, if it's a little bit outside of that, that window of, of where the competition really is right now, can be really beneficial and more compelling and more interesting. Um, but I, it's, uh, it's a tough world. And I think, um, I think I, if I joined now, I don't know that I would have succeeded to be honest. And so it's not to be overly pessimistic because I think there's a lot of opportunity out there, but it's just a really, there's a lot of, um, a lot of really smart people kind of gunning for the deep learning world and, and kind of, um, uh, it seems, it seems really psychologically hard sometimes to keep your wits about you to not follow the, the currents of the crowd. And so I guess I, I would hope that there's some, some way to kind of to thread that needle of novelty, of safety, of, of kind of understanding where people, what the, what the group think currently is and trying to pursue your own interests. But it's, uh, I think it's pretty hard. Yeah. You uh, actually jumped ahead of me, I think, right into the last question I was going to ask, which was your advice for aspiring AI researchers. And as you said, it does seem like there's a particular set of dynamics in the machine learning space. And it does seem like there's this very common sentiment I hear from researchers like yourself or professors who are like, if I were applying to a PhD now or getting into the field, I would not have made it in with just the number of people who are fascinated by this area. And I think I see as well, people who are starting to get into these topics from the beginning of high school, which is absolutely wild. It, it does feel like there's just a sense of, oh, this is you know the most exciting area to be in. Let me optimize for crafting my entire academic journey from the point that I'm like 14 years old to really make myself the best I can be to go into AI. and. So maybe, maybe broadening the perspective a little bit to reframe the last question I had in mind, since I think you gave a really good answer to the first version. Say you're speaking to somebody who maybe thinks about wanting to do machine learning research, isn't entirely sure, but is perhaps open to exploring different things in that regard, but finds it really compelling. Because I imagine that a lot of people are at that point, I've, I've definitely met people myself who are like, I'm very excited about AI, but I don't know that I'm set on the idea of doing a PhD or something like that. What, what would you say to them about just handling the psychological aspects of what do I do if I actually want to get into this field and then balancing that with, I really love this, but then maybe there are other things out there I could explore? Yeah, it's a really... A tough question. I don't know the depth of insight I'll have there, but I guess some thoughts that come to mind are that one one nice thing about machine learning right now is that there are a lot of resources for learning about machine learning and kind of getting involved, getting your hands dirty with uh, these these PyTorch TensorFlow frameworks, and you know getting some access to GPUs from things like Colab. I think it's really beautiful. So there is like some uh, democratization of 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 learning resources. But I do think that um, mentorship is often something that is really important and 
it's I, th I think not everyone is is suited for a kind of like completely independent kind of discovery. I think I wouldn't be. Um, so I think I got lucky. I had a really really good mentor in my, in my PhD that really helped kind of help me to orient to machine learning and AI and how to to work with it and to find like interesting questions that were well suited to what I was interested in. And so I think if you find a mentor, like maybe, um, you know, hold on to that or try to find a mentor, and that's a kind of a scarce resource. Um, it is really unfortunate that it seems like if you want to get into the, you know, the top schools or something, you almost have to like craft your application from day one of high school now and have published papers um, already. And that seems like a really high, um, high bar and in some sense, I think a silly bar. Silly in the sense that it's, if you had asked me at the beginning of my PhD whether I was going to be a good researcher, like, who knows? Um, but I don't know that having papers at that time would have been like the signal. It might be more of a signal of you know, kind of the opportunities I had rather than than whether I would be a good researcher. Um, it's kind of like a messy question. So I guess more than anything, I think I have like sympathy and kind of like compassion for like that situation. Um, and if there's words of advice, like find a niche, I think. I think sometimes the best way to go is to escape competition if you can. And that's easier said than done. But that'd be looking into an area that, that is upcoming or that's kind of off the beaten path or an intersection of two things that, so machine learning and X, where X could be something else that you find personally compelling that maybe isn't on people's radar yet. So it's not easy, I think, to escape competition. I'm not claiming that that's like a simple thing to do, but um, if possible, just some way to, to escape the, the crowds. Um, and so that could require some thought and again, like having a mentor in that space. Um, but I think one nice thing is that machine learning is really becoming ubiquitous in the kind of the fields that it touches. And so there could be, you know, lots of ways to orthogonally get into it, into machine learning through the avenue of, of just a, a different field, given how kind of, um, pervasive it seems to be these days. Yeah, it is a really messy question in a lot of ways. And it does seem like there's some element of strategy that does have to be handled if you're somebody who's who's really set on maybe getting into a top school or something like that. Well, Joel, I do think that you have a really fascinating set of research problems that are, to me, and I think a lot of people, a little bit off the beaten path. And it's been wonderful getting to talk with you about them and hearing your perspectives. Thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time and chatting with me today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun and uh, I really appreciate the time to, to chat with you. It's really um, intriguing and I, I found you a really thoughtful uh, <laughs> interviewer. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.